So this is uh, our final Sunday in Advent, and uh, as I'm sure you know, Advent is the perfect season for sharing philosophical analogies. So why don't I share one with you from Alistair McIntyre in his great book, After Virtue. This is what he writes. Imagine I'm standing waiting for a bus, and a young man next to me suddenly says, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. There's no problem as to the meaning of the sentence he uttered. The problem is, how do I answer it? What was he doing in uttering the sentence? And then he gives four possible reasons that this person could have uttered this sentence. Number one, maybe he just utters such sentences at random intervals. This would be one possible form of madness. Or maybe he has mistaken me for someone who yesterday had approached him in the library and said, hey, do you by any chance know the Latin name of the common wild duck? Or, number three, Maybe he's just come from a session with his psychotherapist who has urged him to break down his shyness by talking to strangers. And so he just says it randomly. Or, number four, maybe he's a Soviet spy waiting at a prearranged rendezvous and uttering the ill-chosen code sentence which will identify him to his contact. Why is he uttering this sentence? And here is what McIntyre says. The central thesis then begins to emerge... Man is, in his actions and practice, as well as his fictions, essentially a storytelling animal. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I answer a prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part? I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I answer a prior question, what story or stories am I a part of? Now, where am I going with this? Well, at Christmas time we uh, focus on the person of Jesus, and we'll, we'll uh, often talk about names for Jesus. Well, the passage that was read this morning by Andrew uh, gave many names for who Jesus is. It called him the Messiah, the King, and the Lord, and the Savior, which is, which is what we're going to look at this morning. But I think that saying uh, Jesus is the Savior is very similar to just going around and saying the name of the common duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. Because that, whatever you think about that, belongs in a story, and we all come with different stories to this question when you say Jesus is Savior. So, what, what, whatever uh, you think of that depends on the story that you live in. So what I want to do this morning, actually, we'll just start off this way. I want us to do a little exercise together. I want you to turn to someone next to you, and I want you to just imagine that you're going to do the same thing. You go to the bus stop, the 19 bus stop, after uh, the service today, head out to Kingsway and Fraser. There's probably loads of people as the bus will just come intermittently with all the snow. And you just utter that word, that phrase to someone, Jesus is the Savior. What do you think people are going to hear? What stories are they a part of? Okay, so turn to someone, a couple people next to you. I encourage you to meet someone new, introduce yourself. And then ask that question. What do you think people would say? What would they hear, sorry, if you say that? Jesus is the Savior. Okay? Go. All right, I'll draw you, draw you back. So what are some of the stories, what, what may be some of the in, uh, interpretations that people might have if you utter the sentence at the bus stop? Go ahead. Sure, so some people might just think you're crazy. The option number one that he said, you just go around uttering random sentences to people. 
like the common duck is histrionicus, histrionicus, histrionicus. Sure. What else? What other stories might people be in that help them interpret this phrase? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Offended. Very offended by that statement. Sure. Anyone other than the mayors have anything to add? Uh, they speak for everyone. Yes, the voice of wisdom. True, very true. Yeah, it was a group project. Okay, yes. Functioning much like my kids' group projects do sound like they do in school. One person does the work and the rest of them talk about Minecraft. Um, yeah, anything else? I think they could be confused. Confused. The word savior has a lot of... Sure. Yeah, it sounds like a religious-y word, not, not something we use very often. So there could be confusion, sure. One or two more, anyone else? I think you could come from, like, you could receive from a Christian worldview, but then be like, oh, you're that kind of Yeah, that's right. That's right, yes, yeah. It's almost like, um, you know, if somebody's coming to try to sell you something at your house, um, doesn't matter if there's someone that you even know, it turns into an awkward situation. Yeah, anyone else? They might agree. They might agree. Sure, that's right. And you might be, everyone else is like, what? Uh, <laughs> have you rode the 19 bus? Um, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, they might. And, but here's the thing, we might not even know what we're agreeing about, right? My wife's family lives in, in Texas, and they all speak English there. But I realize sometimes we're saying the same words, but we're actually talking about very, very different things. Maybe you can understand this if, you're, if you're, uh, English is a second language. You learn English, you come to Canada, and we have our own little vocabulary. We're saying the same words, but we mean different things because we're in different stories. And Tim Mackey, who is the, uh, one of the co-founders of the Bible Project, he, says, he said something that, that made me uh, caught my attention. He said, to say the word God today without explanation is one of the most irresponsible things you can do. Because we're all living in different stories. And so as we come to this story, what, what does it mean? What is the story behind this word Savior for Jesus? And that's where we need to look at a second word that was part of our Advent reading as well. And that's this, the word peace. Because peace helps us to make sense of this story. So let's look at that. When we think of peace, often, again, we have our own story as, as Western people that we bring to it. And often it involves the absence of something. something sorry. So peace is like, for example, the absence of war. Or maybe it's the absence of obstacles in my life, the absence of, of things that stop me from pursuing the good life, or if you were here, the balloon dog life, the smooth life. That's what peace is. But in the Bible, peace is more than just an absence of something. Peace is linked to this Hebrew word shalom, which you may have heard, and the whole idea of shalom. Cornelius Plantiga, a theologian, explains it well like this. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing. It's not just my flourishing. Not even just the flourishing of humans, but the flourishing of our entire universe. It means wholeness. One of the ways that shalom is used in the, in the Hebrew scriptures is that it talks about a wall, a wall that's missing bricks. It's not shalom. And when people come and repair the wall, when they put bricks in, back in, and make it sturdy, then it is shalom. It's whole. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice fulfillment, and delight. It's a rich state of affairs where natural needs are satisfied and natural giftings are fruitfully employed, all under the ark of God and his love. It's, it's generative. Shalom is growing. It's, it's bringing peace, bringing this fullness and wholeness into the whole world. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. 
the way things ought to be. So it's a beautiful picture. And I want to focus in on just one of the things that he says about these four central relationships that we have. And so you can see them up on the screen here. Um, That This is the picture of shalom in the Bible, that there's God. He's at the center of our world. And we know ourselves because we're in right relationship with God, which namely means that he's God, he's in the center, and we're not. But we're his people, we're loved by him, and we're reflecting him into the world. And so we know ourselves, we're in right relationship with ourselves, we're also in right relationship with others. If you think of the first story in the Bible, the first two characters, it says that they are naked and unashamed with each other, that they're, they're able to be very vulnerable with one another without being in any kind of competition, and they partner together for creating more shalom in the world. And that's the picture. And then finally, the, the fourth part is that we're in right relationship with the world, our, the creation, the environment, we might say. And so when, when all these things are in right relationship, when there's justice, when there's wholeness, when there's delight, when there's growing, this is the picture of shalom in the Bible. But the authors of the Bible, and we know that this is not the world that we actually inhabit today. So again, you can look at this on a personal level, the Bible would say that people have troubles or they have worries. And we know today that there's, there's a, you know, an opioid epidemic. There's uh, mass anxiety and mental health issues. There's housing crisis. There's so many issues on a personal level that we're at strife within ourselves, that this, this, the bounds are broken down. The second is that we're in, not in right relationship with each other. And so on a relational level, again, in the Hebrew scriptures, it talks about people being at odds with one another at strife that there's wars and rumors of wars. And, and many of us, uh, we know in our world that there's a war that's continuing to rage on in the Ukraine. Or many of you might be headed home for Christmas, and you know there's going to be some really difficult relationships that you need to negotiate and navigate there. We're not in right relationship with each other. And then thirdly, in an environmental level, with creation, with our world. The scripture often talks about how the land is crying out, how it's groaning, how it's barren rather than fruitful. And in our world today, we know the Anthropocene, or the, 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 the time of being humans on this earth, we've, we've created, we've wreaked havoc on our world and on our earth. We're very aware of that today. And then finally, our relationship with God is broken down. So rather than experiencing God as we, we are want to, uh, as friends, and worship as partners, we're alienated from him. We're enemies and interestingly, I don't know if you caught it when Andrew read the passage today. What is, what is it that the shepherds experience when the angel shows up? What's the emotion? It's fear. And this is the one all throughout the Bible that happens. Fear, or when Adam and Eve, again, those two main characters that were naked and unafraid, when they're experiencing shalom with themselves and with each other and with God, they were naked and unashamed. But the moment that they walk away from that path, they choose their own path, what happens? They, they feel shame. And all of these emotions are, are true when our approach to God. And the Bible has several word, words to describe this situation. It can say it's evil, or sometimes it calls it sin, or that there's brokenness and that our world is disintegrating. It's not as it should be, is basically the opposite of shalom. So the question becomes, what are we to do about this? Is there any way that we can restore shalom or in contemporary culture, we might ask this question, can we, how can we experience flourishing rather than languishing or degradation? Or in biblical language, we might say, who can save us? Who can restore shalom? And now we start to see this word savior take place in this story. And there's lots of attempts 
to restore shalom and save in the Hebrew scriptures. But I just want to talk through one just for the time that we have together this morning. One story of a biblical person who is a savior of shalom. And it starts with this character in the Bible named David. If you've been around the Bible at all, you probably know a little bit about him. He was a very important king and character in the story of God. And God made a promise to him. He said, through your family, I will restore shalom. I will do it. And so uh, David has a son, and he names him Solomon. Solomon. And that name is a wordplay on the word shalom. On the word shalom. Shalomamon just doesn't have the same ring to it, I think. So they just went with Solomon uh, instead. And then this, this guy Solomon, that wasn't a good one. Okay, I don't know. It was kind of a dad joke, but I, I kept it in there anyways. Just keep seeing if you're awake. Okay, so... Uh, Solomon, and then he's, where does he reign and rule? What's the city that he takes over? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of Shalom. So there's this story of Shalom that they, they said to David, your son is going to be the person who restores Shalom, or from your line. He names this guy Shalom, and he's in the city of Shalom. So you can just see there's all this anticipation towards this guy. Maybe he will be the one to restore the wall. Maybe he will be the one to, re, to reinstitute Shalom. In the world. So how does he do? He's well, I say this once first. Actually, he's he's the Prince of Peace. That's truly who he is. He's the son of the king, and he's going to bring shalom. That's what everybody is gearing towards with this guy. So how does he do? Well, you probably know a few good things about Solomon. The first is that uh, God comes to him and he says, Hey, I'll offer you one thing. What would you like? And anyone who went to elementary school knows the right answer to this question. If a deity or a genie offers you a wish, what should you say? I want more wishes. Come on. We're good consumers here. We know. Give me more. I don't even know what I want yet, but just give me more of it. That is not what Solomon asks for. He asks for wisdom. He says, I want to know how to rule your people. That's an amazing thing. And God grants him wisdom, and he's a very wise person, ruling and reigning. He also rebuilds the temple, which is the kind of permanent home for God, the place for God's presence to dwell among his people, the first person to build this temple. But there's also a bunch of pretty bad stuff about Solomon. In Deuteronomy 17, which is an earlier passage, it lays out the things that kings, of, the princes of Shalom, what they should and shouldn't do. And here's a list of three of the things they should not do. It says, you, if you're a king, if you're ruling God's people, do not acquire many wives. Secondly, do not acquire a lot of money, which is a surprise to us. I think when we often think of people who are reigning and ruling, we think, oh, they're going to get really rich. The Bible says, no, don't, because that will puff you up. It'll put you above your people. And then third is don't enslave people. So it has a long list, but these are three of the things. And then what does Solomon do in his life? Number one, he marries a lot of women for political alliances. And it says it turns his heart away from shalom, away from God, towards a different story. The second thing that he does is he accumulates a lot of money and a lot of possessions. And the same thing, it turns his heart away. And then finally, he starts using slave labor for all the building projects that he's doing. And so maybe he creates a bit of personal peace, but not shalom, as the Bible talks about. And at the end of Solomon's story, it says this about him. Solomon was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God. Solomon was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God. And that word, wholeheartedly, is the same word. It's shalom. Solomon was not shalom. He was not at shalom with himself, with God, with his people, and with the world. 
And it's a shocking turn in the story because this, this guy who we thought was going to be the Prince of Peace, that was everything about him. That was the hopes for him. He had all the potential for it. Ends up looking like a very different king that we've already met in the story of God. And his name is Pharaoh. He's doing all the same things. Enslaving people, building, accumulating. From the Prince of Peace to Pharaoh. And Walter Brueggemann, who's a Hebrew uh, uh, expert and an Old Testament uh, uh, commentator, he says that this is always what happens when we try and pursue shalom through our own means, which are power and coercion. He says we erect empires and we become pharaohs. And empires are the opposite of, of shalom. Here's what he says. Empires are places where there's a lack of forgiveness because our stories are at the center, so we can't forgive other people. There's no generous sharing. There's an upholding of class stratification that one group of people is better than the other. There's no attentiveness to the vulnerable and unproductive, that it lacks humility, that it's characterized by aggressively trying to be first, and people put their needs before the needs of their neighbors. This is what empire looks like. And that's what characterizes the, the reigns of Pharaoh. It's what characterizes the reign of Solomon. And to me... This sounds a lot like the world that we live in, too. No different. And so here's the tension that we find ourselves in. We long for the world as it should be, but we experience the world as it is. We long for shalom, but we experience the opposite. And so the, the, after Solomon, these other writers in the Bible, they pick up on this tension of longing for shalom but not experience it. And one of the most famous is Isaiah, from, which read from Isaiah 66. And one of the most famous passages in Isaiah, it comes from Isaiah 9. We often read it at Christmas, and I want to read it because he's picking up on the story of shalom. He says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in a land of darkness. Those of us who live in non-shalom times, we have this hope. And there's maybe this hope that's rising. And a people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time, as they rejoice when dividing the spoils. Something will happen that will bring joy. For you have shattered the oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did in the day of Midian. But the power of the pharaohs will be broken. Something will happen. For every trampling boot of battle and every bloody garment of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is part of much of the prophetic voice that talks about shalom, that all of these instruments of war, all the things that we use for war, the things that put enmity between, one, one, uh, between us, that they will actually be broken. You might know that, uh, that famous line where our swords will be bent into plowshares, that we will turn those weapons of war into something that's used for shalom and cultivating the world. And then he continues, a child will be born for us, A son will be given, a new prince, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be a new Prince of Peace, a son of the king, whose responsibility and possibility is to bring shalom. He continues, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David. He'll be a new Solomon. And over his kingdom, reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is written to those who wait. 
that there is a hope of someone coming. And when the angel comes, they pick up on this exact same language, this exact same idea. I proclaim to you good news of great joy. Remember what Isaiah said? Rejoice. There will be rejoicing. That will be for all the people. Because today in the city of David, again, that same line, that same promise, that same story, a Savior is born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. A child is born, he will be the Savior, and he'll bring peace. They're tapping into this story, and they're trying to clarify for us what it means when we hear these words, Jesus saves, that he's bringing us back. He's offering a way for us to come back into the story of Shalom, to be participants in this story. That something unique is going to happen through his life that will draw us back in. So if Shalom is the story, and if Jesus is the Savior, then what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us? Well, I just want to say one thing on that. That it's good news for some, and not so good news for others. This announcement that Jesus is coming to save and bring shalom is good news for some, but not such good news for others. And you can see that. The angel actually says it's a proclamation of peace, but it's for um, only some people, not everyone. And what do I mean by that? Well, in the time of Jesus, Romans, uh, in the time of Jesus, the Romans would make a declaration of peace, this kind of declaration of peace, after a birth, which meant that a new emperor had just been born. So if you, if you announce that there is a new prince of peace, it meant that there was a new emperor that's been born. And so this is really good news for some people. If you're a person under the current emperor who's being oppressed, uh, who is not in favor with the emperor, who is a slave, that's really good news for you because a new emperor is going to come in. And maybe in that new kingdom, you will be someone. You'll be raised up. So it's good news for those kinds of people. But it's really, really bad news if you're the emperor, isn't it? Because they're saying a new emperor is coming. So to you, this good news doesn't sound like good news. It sounds more like a threat. There's a threat to your kingship. There's a threat to your current reign and rule. And that's the way that it would have been heard at this time. When the angel comes and announces good news, announce the, uh, the angel announces it to the poor. Who do they come to? Not, not to the king, but to shepherds. And so... It's good news for for the lowly, for the poor, but it's really bad news to the pharaohs of the world. It's bad news if you've heard the story of Jesus from Matthew, you know that there's a king at that time named Herod who comes and he tries to kill Jesus and he kills many boys because he knows that his reign, his rule, is threatened by the new king Jesus. It's It's a threat to Caesar and all the Caesars of the world. If you know anything about Christian history, for the first few centuries of uh, the church, people are persecuted. People are martyred and killed. They're hunted down. Why? Because they claim that there's another king. That's a threat to the current kingdom. And this is no less true today. The announcements of, of the angels is still good news for us. It's still to be heard in this way. It's good news for all of those who are poor, who are vulnerable, who are abused, who are broken, who find themselves lowly, who are not living lives that are smooth, to those of us who have failed at the middle-class Canadian dream and the dreams that we've had ever since we were little kids. It's good news to us because there's a new kingdom to be a part of. But it's really bad news for those who are using power as a weapon in this world, those who are busy accumulating 
as Pharaoh and Solomon did, those who are trying to get personal peace at the cost of shalom for the world. And at this point, I think many of us would raise our hands and we'd be like, amen, that's great. Let it be so. You know, let's down with those people. God, I I long that you would come and that you would take, you know, Putin out of power. Humble him and bring peace on this earth. Or you might think at this time of the year, you know, I I work with, uh, with businesses and I think about all of the big bonuses that people are getting at this time of year. People are just getting crazy bonuses these CEOs, while at the, on the backs of other people. So I think, come, Jesus, come, Prince of Peace, and bring equality. Or you might say, you know, the spiritual leaders and pastors who have abused their, their positions of power, Jesus, come. Come, bring restoration. Come, bring healing. And we're right to say all of those things. But there's another level that we need to be aware of. And so I, I want to illustrate it like this. For almost 100 years, Time Magazine has put out a person of the year. For the first, like, 75 years, it was only the man of the year, but now women can be involved, too, so that's exciting. Um, But it's an astonishing list of people, the person of the year. Here's just a few of them up here, but I'll just give you a few names. Last year was Elon Musk, person of the year. year before, Greta Thunberg, Vladimir Putin, Barack Obama, Jeff Bezos, Donald Trump, Mark Zuckerberg, Adolf Hitler, and Richard Nixon. Now, we can debate which of these people were more like Solomon, a prince of peace, and which of them were more like Pharaoh. That's not what I want to do today. I'm sure that it'd be a fun and lively debate that you could have over lunch. My point is that when we hear those names of all of those people, we think of people with massive amounts of power. We think of them as people who are either Solomons or Pharaohs. But in 2006, they added a really interesting name of someone that we would never, ever think of to be on the Time cover person of the year. In 2006, Time put this person on the cover. You. You are the person of the year. And here, let me just read the caption. It's pretty small. It says, yeah, yes, you. It's you. You control the information age. Welcome to your world. That was the subcaption there. So if anyone is applying for school or applying for a job anytime soon, you can just include this uh, in your application. It's like, yeah, 2003 to 2004, I worked at McDonald's. 2006, I was the time person of the year. And then uh, I've also volunteered in Sunday school for a few years. So (laughs) this is my resume, humble. But Times is, the, the Times is pointing out something that's very true about this moment in history that we have an unbelievable amount of power and ability. And you might say, me? And I would say, yes, but they're also saying, yes. This is our world. It's yes, it's you. Each of us, every day, is creating an empire. That's what they say, your world. And many of us, that's what we're doing every day, is we're just grinding. We're scrambling hard to have our lives be smooth, to have peace in our lives. The obstacles remove. And we're sometimes so blind, we're so busy doing that, that we're completely blind to how that causes the lack of shalom in the world. It's the default setting of our moment is just to push into our our personal stories. If you remember that image, that instead of God being at the center, that we just put our personal stories there. That's the default setting of of our, our world today. And this is exactly what Solomon did, to say, I know better. I'm more comfortable if I'm at the center. I like being in control. 
And this comes at the cost of shalom. That's what the Bible says. And you may say, like, I don't know if, if, if that's me. What does it even really look like to push my, push my story into the middle? Well, again, Brueggemann, he gives an explanation of what peace looks like, what shalom looks like. I want to just read this list for us. And this could be one of those places that you just take a little bit of time to think about. Am I busy creating my own story, or am I creating shalom? He says, peace requires the capacity to forgive. That was the one that stood out to me. I'm a person who's pretty slow to forgive, to be honest. And it's because I stand at the middle of the story. If someone has offended me, well, I don't think of myself as the king, but it's kind of like that. They've offended the king. You need to, you know, bring a little bit more, uh, bring a little bit more that I would forgive you for that. I'm slow to forgive. He says, peace requires the capacity to forgive. Shalom. Because we're not at the center of the world. Peace requires a readiness to share generously. Is that you? To give of what, of what has been given to you. Peace requires the violation of a strict class stratification in society. We're not just sticking with those who are like us, who make the same amount of us, who like the same things as us. Peace requires attentiveness to the vulnerable and unproductive. Unproductive. I think we think a lot about the vulnerable. What about unproductive? Peace requires humility in the face of exaltation. Being last among those who insist on being first and denying self in the interest of neighbor. These are all practices, practices that mark the presence in his, or mark his presence in his society. Are we care, people who are characterized by shalom, by peace? And as I read through this list and meditated on it this week, I have to say there's many areas no in my life. I don't think of myself as a pharaoh. I don't think of myself as a Solomon. I don't think of myself as anyone who's anywhere close to being on the Times Person of the Year list. But we still are all tiny pharaohs, according to the story, ruling in skull-sized empires that unleash chaos in the world and work against shalom. So if this is us, what can we do? What's the invitation for us in this passage? Well, at the heart of Christmas, as we looked at a couple weeks ago when we looked at the story of Mary, at the heart of Christmas is, is a mystery and a paradox. And in today's passage, we find it in these words, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. On one hand, it's a claim to leadership that as the prince... Jesus is making a claim to leadership that he's the king of Israel, the coming king of Israel. And not only that, he's actually the king of the world. And he's the king of all time, and he's the, that means all of our lives, all of our little empires. There's a threat there for us. But his stake to the throne is not claimed by violence or by power grabs. That's what everyone was expecting that he would do, that he would come and destroy the empire of the Romans. It's the same thing that we do. We look outside of ourselves and we say, oh God, come and destroy all those empires. That's what people were wanting him to do when he came, to violently take over. But, but that's the way of empire. That's not the way that Jesus works. Instead, his claim to kingdom takes a different path. And he's born, as we see, to a family that's on the run. He doesn't come to be served as a king, but he comes to serve. And ultimately, he gives his, his life, which is ultimate weakness. As Paul says, it's foolishness, foolishness to the Greeks, and a stumbling block. It's the complete inverse of the way that we think a king would do. But then as he's, after he dies, he is raised from the dead 
to show that he truly is king over all. That's his claim to kingship. And it's, again, it's not an act of violence, it's an act of victory. It's a very different thing. Turning empire on its head and unseating every pharaoh ever and threatening every pharaoh ever. And that's the same way that God works in our lives, that Jesus wants to come into our lives. He will not violently enter your story. And again, this is part of the paradox and mystery. God wants to enter into your story, but he's not going to do it in a violent way. He's not going to can opener you and just get in there. That's not the way that he works. Instead, he enters into the story the way that we read this morning, in mystery and in invitation. I proclaim good news to you, that there's always this offer of peace that's coming out to every single one of us to join in with him. And it's a nail-pierced hand of Jesus, the suffering Savior, coming into our lives, offering us to partner with him in shalom, to pull us out of our little stories, pull us out of the ways that we try to grab power and try to grab control to make our lives smooth and pull us into a much bigger story, into the story of God, into this beautiful picture of shalom. And that's the story of the Bible, that it moves from creation to new creation, from a garden to a garden city, from shalom to shalom. And we find ourselves somewhere in this place here, somewhere in between, with Jesus' hand in the Christmas story and as the resurrected king reaching back to us saying, come, let go of the power grabs, let go of putting your, your story at the center, stop being Pharaoh, and instead bend your knee to me, a king who's nonviolent, but who's offering you to be part of a much bigger story. And when we do that, we, we become peacemakers. That's who we are. That's part of our identity as followers of Jesus, that we learn to become people of peace, who make peace, who bring shalom. All those things that Brueggemann talked about, that those are characteristics that well up inside of us. So do you want to be a peacemaker? Do you want to be part of this story of shalom? Then look at the Prince of Peace. That's the invitation. Reorient your story to his story. See his hands coming and inviting you and confess and turn away from the many ways that we create empire and are like Pharaoh and join him in the restoration of all things. Let's close in prayer. Gracious God, as we reflect on the Prince of Peace, we remember all the places in the world and our lives where things are not the way that they are supposed to be. So we ask that you would give us courage to surrender our empires and humility to receive the offer of the Prince of Peace this Christmas. May we join you as peacemakers in your work of justice and renewal. Amen.